1: The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me, my co-host, Steve Ubbins. Welcome in, sir.
0: Thank you. And uh, it's been quite the weekend for me from technology land, let me tell you. Tell me about it. What's been the weekend? Well, I started preparing for a uh, a client presentation about doing namespaces and things like that. So, Linux namespaces by hand, and um, I've been working to cross train in the app side of things. So, I come from like system administration and the hardware that tends to be where I lean. So, I've started to cross train with with an app dev, and. Red Hat's preferred language for me to learn is Go. So I've started to try and figure out how do I do this thing that I know fairly well in Bash, which is just, you know, it is what it is. There's a bunch of containers and commands that you can run and do this in Go. And so that's been quite the adventure of like trying to wrap your head around the way that This particular language works as well as trying to mimic a thing that you already do fairly proficiently. And so that's been quite the the interesting taxing of skill. And this is
1: what you do on your weekend
0: on your time, you know, yeah, you know. I'm a nerd. What can I say? <laughs>
1: yeah. The hobbies you have. Again, 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at com. That's how you join the program. Become a part of the program. Make your voice heard. we got a number of ways for you to do that. We invite you to join us at geeklab.ninja. Tony calls from Toronto. Hey, Tony. Welcome to the Ask NOAH show.
2: Hi, Noah. Hi, Steve. Um, I have a question so I had an incident at one of my customers recently where um, they were contacted by the police. Um, I guess somebody in their office, and we don't know who was visiting uh, sites that should not be visited and that are frankly disgusting you know involving children unfortunately and um, I want to know what what do you guys recommend for a way to be able to track what people are visiting so I can know who's who's doing like who's who's in a business environment who's using the the company internet for um, you know, visiting
1: not company, company stuff and,
2: and bad sites right, exactly. I like I, I really wish I had the, the 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 info to really know exactly who it was because it, it kind of pissed me off that somebody's using the corporate internet for that. Um, any
0: recommendations? Steve, what are your thoughts? The most common way to do this is with a pro- like a transparent proxy. Um, now you don't actually have to block anything if you don't want to. Like proxies can do lots of things. They can, I don't wanna say sniff the traffic, but they basically, they know who's requesting the traffic and can return it to you and it gives you a level of auditability. They can also do blocking if you want them to. Uh, So that's one of the most common ways to do it is through software. Lots of other ways that you might do this are if you've got managed switches where they're aware of where the traffic is coming from on what ports and things like that, there should be a way for you to track it back that way. Um, And while I'm not necessarily in favor of logging, like doing audit logging on computers themselves, that is another option. It becomes a little that one becomes a little more tricky uh, for various reasons, because there's a lot of ways to attempt to defeat the software. Uh, You're never going to be able to completely stamp this out if they, for example, if you allow unfettered access outbound so they could turn on a VPN, they could use a web based proxy. There's lots of ways that people can get around this. What would you do, Noah? Um, so proxy is probably the
1: best way to go. Other two ways that I've seen this done is using DNS. So they'll use a built-in DNS resolver or forwarder, and they'll override um, if there's a specific site that they don't want people to visit, they'll override that to like one twenty seven zero zero one or something like that. Um, I've also seen it done with firewall rules. I would. I, my caveat here is I've never seen it done well with firewall rules, but I've seen it done with firewall rules that block uh in in alias or a specific ip address or a or a, a host of ip addresses um again my caveat there is that i've i've frequently seen fail because sites don't necessarily keep the same ip and many of them are using load balancers and so it um not 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 the best way
0: by far but yeah dns won't work though because if you're talking about any number of of sites you can you can block the well-known ones like Facebook or whatever. But if you're talking about ones that are a little shifty to begin with, there's going to be multiple DNS entries pointing that way. Um, so DNS isn't really going to give you much. You could you know, you can try and en- enable audit logs that will, on a DNS server, and that's a good idea. It's not necessarily going to stop them. Well, but, in but this if, they case, know, if
1: they know which sites they're, like, so for example, they get a call or a report and saying, hey, we have users that are going to this site or doing this thing. That would be where we'd look back and say, okay, well, let's just stop you from able, from being able to resolve these sites. And certainly there's ways around all of those things, right? I mean, if you're just connecting with a VPN from the inside and getting out, all of these things are likely to
0: fail, except that the problem that that you are that dealing with this at DNS does, um, as opposed to doing some sort of logging, is that it's very reactive. Right, you have to be yes. able to sniff backwards, and uh, DNS is whack a mole. Whereas yep. if if you are doing a proxy, um, it is still a bit of a whack a mole, but you have a lot more. Um, a lot more ability to do things like a regular expression as opposed to DNS where it's a lot harder to get a huge swath of various DNS without having a ton of entries. With a proxy server, you can do essentially a bunch of regular expressions that's gonna grab a ton of things um, and just log them for you. So it's, I'm always more in favor of the logging Because with the blocking, unless you're going to block everything and like really restrict it, like some very large corporations, you're always going to be playing whack-a-mole. And I think now uh, I think the caller can tell us, though, I believe the issue was I want to find out who did this, not just to stop them.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, um, I mean, we're not really interested, like if somebody goes on Facebook or whatever during the day or I mean, whatever it is. Uh, that's fine because, yeah, you're right, I will have to play whack-a-mole where all of a sudden, you know, Facebook changes something and something, you know, or 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 worse, um, you know, legitimate sites are being blocked because of, you know, they're, they're kind of false positives. I guess more, yeah, I do want an audit trail to be able to know. I mean, this is the first time it's ever happened, but just to, to know in the future how I can, you know, kind of nail the guy, right?
0: Yeah, the proxy is going to be your best bet. It's the easiest to implement without having any kind of high cost. And you could also do things like um make everybody's computer log into the proxy with their own um username and password. Cuz there's a bunch of ways you can do this, right? You can have a proxy that's transparent and it literally just sits between everybody and the internet. <clears throat> and then you'd have a, a log of like this IP address and the or MAC address made this call. But if you implement a proxy that has to be uh, authenticated against, then you actually have username X made query Y to try and get to whatever. And you'll have a lot better of an audit trail. It's a little more of a pain to set up, but um, that would probably be the route that I'd look at.
2: So so would I just then, for example, uh, block all port 80, port 443, outbound, as an example, and uh, only allow it through the proxy, and like I guess I on everybody's computer uh, configure their proxy settings to go through my proxy, right? Do you have any recommendations uh, on a pretty good proxy, or should I just kind of I can even Google it?
0: Uh, Squid is actually really widely deployed. I was really surprised when I started working at Red Hat to find how many of my clients actually use Squid. Of course, there are people that have like these giant uh, maintenance contracts with some big vendor. But Squid is really well used out there. Um, I would I would look at that first and see if it might suit your business policies, because there's all kinds of reasons why people might not use it. Um, but I don't have any. Other than that, I don't have a specific proxy. What about you, Noah?
1: Uh, lights, yeah. Squid, SquidGuard, Light Squid. Um, many of these are. Uh, I think they actually are available just as packages in pfSense, if I remember right.
0: Yep, Squid definitely is. I believe so. yeah. Are you using pfSense?
1: Okay. Well.
2: I uh, I am,
1: yes actually. Okay. Yeah, that's where I'd start and then um and then you can you can dig further if you need to.
0: If you're going to put it on pfSense, Perfect make thing. sure that you have remote logging going somewhere else so that you don't like bomb your pfSense with uh unexpected consequences.
2: Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much, guys. I appreciate
0: it. Yeah, we
1: appreciate the call. 855-450-NOAH. That's 855 450 The email live at com. Ninja Tech in the chat room over at geeklab.ninja says that we use a product branded as Dragon's Tail. It's really just a shorewall firewall, transparent proxy as a particular school system. Keeping the whitelist and blacklist stuff up to date is a nightmare. Things just change too, too fast. Alabama schools are all required to use a state-run filtering service. Last time I checked, they contacted me. The filtering service is on the wire, so no one at the school has direct access to the filtering device. Lots of interesting, lots of interesting things around uh, this topic. Again, if you have a question or a thought to add to the show, 855 450 No, it's one The email, live at com. Our first email this hour comes in from Tyler. Tyler writes in and says, Hello, first of all, thank you both for the great show and the information. I have a question on VLANs and managed switches. I have a PFSense that runs on my old boxes and I have it set up for routing. My Xfinity modem is set to bridged mode and PFSense handles all of the routing. I have two Unifi APAC Pros that are used for the wireless connection to the network. I also bought a mini Unify switch to play with and my other switches are non-managed. My question, Will this set, with this setup, can I set up additional VLANs or will I need to get a managed switch or switches of some sort? I'm not super impressed with the UniFi Mini and would like a recommendation on something else, maybe not as expensive as the larger UniFi switches, if I do need more hardware. I have the Uni- the Wi-Fi VLAN currently that comes with the default one and the UniFi access point set up for guest access, but I would like to set up another VLAN that I could use to put things like uh, the Darn Vulnerability web app and make sure that it's not exposed to the internet. I'm trying to learn pen testing and spin up and down a lot of potentially dangerous VMs for testing and learning on down the road, I would also like to set up a LAN for IoT devices that are on the Wi-Fi but can also be secure. Hopefully, those questions make sense. Thanks again for the show, Tyler. So, Steve, your thoughts on VLANs for Tyler? Is he going to need uh, managed switches or can he do VLANs on a dumb switch?
0: Well, he said he had the uh, Unify Mini, and when I looked around for what that one was, I came up, up with the Unify Mini Switch uh, Flex and it says it supports VLANs. Now, I'm not sure if this is the same because we don't have the actual model number. So if it doesn't, um, I actually have a uh, TP-Link five-port managed switch to do this. Uh, You can do multiple VLANs in PFSense if you have multiple network cards or multiple ports available to you. So uh, I would look at the TP-Link, I believe it's the GSG ten five E or something like that. Yeah,
1: we have a link in the show notes. We're going to put in there for, to to that actually specifically that TP Link
0: uh, switch. It works pretty well. I mean, it's a little five port thing, and if you just want to play around with VLANs, um, but I'll kick this one at you because you do this all day.
1: Yeah. So um, essentially, with a VLAN, what you're doing is tagging the packet and telling it here is what network you belong to. So. With an unmanaged switch, if it truly is unmanaged, it has no concept of those tags. It doesn't know how to process them. It doesn't know what to do with them. And so it won't do anything with them. Um, So if you want to start playing with VLANs, you will need some sort of a managed switch to really take advantage of it. Now, what Steve was saying, you can have multiple network cards. That's true. But if you want to split those networks then out any further than just one device into your PFSense, you're going to have to have either a separate switch for each different VLAN that you want to run or... You just invest in a managed switch and the advantage of doing the managed switch is you can send all of the VLANs out of a single port and ingest those into a single port on a switch and then break them back out. Now, a couple things I picked up on your email that I want to dig into a little bit. You say things like you're using the default VLAN on the Unify AP with guest access. I want to be clear. I don't believe out of the box, the way that Unify is doing the guest network is it's not actually separating that off as a separate VLAN. What it's doing is taking all of the clients that associate to that SSID and dropping all packets that are bound for anywhere other than the gateway. So you're able to talk to the internet, but you're not able to talk to anything else. It's essentially doing client isolation, but that's a function of uh, the access point. It's not really a a, a network-wide function. And that's that's not to say that it's horribly insecure and that people are going to be able to dance around your network but it is to say that it was not designed with that with the same kind of security and in testing in mind that, that comes with with actually separating out to to separate vlans which does meet uh, pci compliance uh so when you if you were looking for recommendations for a switch my favorite uh cheap switch is what steve recommended the the tp link sg105e Um, And that'll get you started They're under $30, which is why I think they're a really great deal. And it's fine if what you want to do is plug into your home lab and spit out uh, four different networks. And you can absolutely do that with that switch. If you want to get a little bit more advanced, and I suspect that if you're especially if you want to start playing with pen testing and stuff like that, I'd highly recommend picking up a proper switch. And there are a couple of ones you can go with. You can go with Cisco, which is the tried and true go to standard. Nobody ever got fired for buying a Cisco switch but they're expensive um and also well really they're expensive that's that's really the big thing, but updates you're also paying a lot of money to get newer software features the h p nineteen twenty series is a really great managed switch for a couple of reasons. first of all, they've been around forever, so you can pick them up used for as little as a hundred to two hundred dollars. Secondly, they're still a current model, so you if you decide you grow into it and you really like it, you can still buy nineteen uh, an HP 1920, both in a 24-port or a 48-port. They come in both non-POE or POE, and then if you want to kick your game up a little bit from there, you can go to the 1950, but even with the 1920 series, it supports stacking, and that's something that both the Unify switches, well, the TP-Links definitely don't do it, and even the unify switches don't support stacking, and so if you want, if you're, if you think you're going to get further into networking and playing, I'd highly recommend picking up uh, an actual proper switch. Um, but then, as far as actually setting them up, you you you'll you'll create the VLAN inside of pfSense, you'll tag that VLAN out of the switch port in your pfSense box, unless you have a dedicated NIC, and then from there, you're able to uh, create a trunk port on your managed switch and say, I want to ingest VLAN 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, etc. Our second email comes in from John. John writes in and says, hi know I'm in my, in my living room. We have four lights, two over the couches and two over the TV. I thought I did enough research looking for smart bulbs, but the product I got, it isn't reliable, especially with a toddler playing with the switch. And my wife factor is lowering. What options do I have if I want to be able to turn the two couch lights into a schedule when we flip the switch? Or not at all on the four. Do we need all four lights on when we have guests or we're doing something besides watching TV, which is especially in the winter? My requirements are I would like to keep the switch functional and do not require an Internet connection for the switch to work. Also, uh, doesn't reset the devices if a toddler tries to turn the lights on and off and keeps pushing the button longer than they need to. My nice to haves are add some smart capabilities so we can turn them on or off on a schedule like a sunset and the ability to dim the lights. My really nice to have would be be able to use Google assistant or Siri to turn the lights on or off. Thanks, John. So Steve, you're the, you're the resident home, uh, automate or uh, home assistant guy. Uh,
0: what should John do? So there's a lot to unpack here. So first he didn't say whether he has all four lights on the same switch, whether he's got two and two or like he didn't say. So, uh, assuming that they're all four on the same circuit, so you flick the switch and all four come on, you're going to have a little bit of trouble with what you want to do. So all smart bulbs, regardless whether they're running open source firmware or closed source or whatever, they have a fail-safe where if you power cycle them a certain number of time in a given number of seconds, they will reset themselves. This is by design. You're not going to get away from this on on smart bulbs. So... That might not be the way you want to go. Um, There are... uh, hmm. You can do... If they're all four connected to the same light switch, there are a few things that you could do if you're comfortable with wiring. Do not do this if you are not comfortable with wiring. But there are devices called Shelly Ones, which are UL certified and safe to put in your wall. And essentially, they are... The way that you hook them up, they're aware whether you're sending the signal via a light switch or your home assistant or your smartphone or whatever. And what this means is you're, if you turn the light on with your phone and you walk over to the wall and you flick the, the switch to whatever its opposite position is, the light will go off and vice versa. Now, this can confuse some people because you can walk over and hit the light down and it turns the lights on because all that light switch is doing is toggling the state. So because, the, because this device knows I have, you know, I'm currently on, so the next time I get a signal from anywhere, I'm going to turn it off. Now, you can use this kind of device to help you um, turn various devices on and off. This requires some wiring. If you're not into that, uh, if you 're not into doing any type of wiring whatsoever you 're going to be limited to to smart bulbs that 's just well, the way it 's i mean
1: or hire a or hire an electrician right
0: right yes so I guess my my point is if if you don 't want to have any work done with wiring just as a a statement um, you 're going to be stuck with smart bulbs there are so you also didn 't say whether or not you had any kind of um, assistant. So are you running open hab? Are you running home assistant? You know, there's a few others out there that are floating around. You didn't really say, uh, if you're not running one of these things, you're going to be stuck to, uh, either a Shelly device because they have local access or you're going to be stuck with the cloud because there has to be some way to communicate with these devices with a small asterisk saying some of the home kit stuff can work, uh, locally without the internet but i don't have much experience with HomeKit.
1: i personally don't and i think you and i are kind of coming at this the same way i'm personally not a big fan of smart stuff being in the load itself i would prefer that the smart stuff being at the switch and i prefer that for two reasons one is if putting the smart stuff at the switch means that we imitate the way that the designer the builder of the house and the way of the occupants of the house would physically walk through the house so i walk into the living room and i go over to this control point and i push the button on or off if i expose that via an api or some other way to or you know over rf some way to actuate that on off point i've not changed the way that the house was intended to work i've simply added functionality once you change once you put the smart control portion into the load itself, now you conceivably have a, a situation in where the light bulb itself has turned off even though the switch is on, right? And you've lost local control of that switch from, from, the, from the switch. So uh, my preference is always to keep that stuff at, at the switch. From that perspective, is there a particular light switch that you say, hey, this one works really, really well with, with home assistance, what I would put in my house?
0: I mean, I like the Z-Wave stuff. Lots of people swear by Zigbee stuff. Um, there's there's a GE Z-Wave, uh, one that I really like that's got a motion sensor built into it. And man, uh, these things have been flawless. I really like them. They're a little bit pricey. Um, and there's another brand that, that escapes me and I use these when I don't want the motion sensor, uh, partly because they claim, and I'm gonna put a big asterisk there, they claim they give 50% of their profits to charity. So I don't know if that's true, but they come in a little bit cheaper, and they have also been really solid for me. I'll have to dig up the uh, exact brand name afterwards. So I've typically
1: used uh, Lutron switches for everything that I've done. I've been 100% happy with them. They work absolutely flawlessly. Um, the only downside to them is they're a little pricey. Um, they're about $150 bucks a switch. Um, and so that, that, that sometimes gets out of people's price point. I've looked at a brand called Inovelli, I-N-O-V-E-L-L-I, and things that I like about them is that, first of all, they're significantly cheaper, so they're about 42 bucks a piece. Second of all, you can program all of the buttons to do stuff, and the LED on the side, you can program to give responses back, so you can have it flash when, um, when a particular event happens. And so I've played with them a little bit, but I don't have enough of them in use to be able to tell you one way or the other like hey this is definitely the one i would go but yeah if you want to maybe you could dig up uh, your switch recommendations and i'll i'll give a couple of links to mine and um we'll have that oh okay ultra pro so uh, we'll have those in the show notes you can find those at Com. our third email comes in from brett brett writes in and says i wanted to recommend a software pick Give this developer a shout-out. You guys have to check this out. It's called DerbyNet, and it's for Pinewood Derbies, and he gives the link. I ran it on our pack for a Docker container, and then you connect the kiosks via web, control the track timer, uh, and photos, check-ins, relay cameras, etc. It's really amazing what all the software can do, not to mention it's free, and it's open source, and the developer is extremely friendly and responsive. I'd love to give him a shout out and a plug for his program for any Cub Scout or Boy Scout packs looking for an outstanding solution for Pinewood Derby. It works on a lot of different tracks and timer options. I don't have enough good things to say about it. So I took a look at DerbyNet. It is, as they put it, is the new standard in race management software for Pinewood Derby events. It's free. It's open source. And with DerbyNet, multiple browsers connect to a web browser running your laptop or in the cloud. The laptops or tablets. At the check-in desk are updating the state of the roster in the database in real time. One or more stations capturing photos of the racers or the race cars. And in the event, the dashboard is running on the race coordinator's tablet from which he or she can see the overall state of the event, control information on the displays, generate racing schedules, or even directly control the racing by group. It includes something called Derby Timer, which is a small cross-platform platform Uh, forming link between the track and timer on the web surfer. And then the main race display projected onto a large screen is showing the entrance into the current heat and the heat result. A cam trigger triggers the instant replay immediate upon each heat's finish. Smart TVs acting as a supplemental information displays or kiosks will provide additional race details and statistics updated in real time. Steve, do you ever do derby racing when you were a kid?
0: I did not i lived in the middle of nowhere and i would have been racing myself
1: okay well that's fair so i i, I didn't do it as a kid i wasn't in boy scouts but my my wife did uh at her church and so they did a lot of dirt they did a lot of pinewood derby racing and she had an unfair advantage because her dad is a mechanical engineer and so guess who had the most aerodynamic car uh, all the time so we'll, we'll have a link to derby net uh, in the show notes and a huge thanks to brett for reaching out and and submitting this it's absolutely fantastic Our fourth question is about RHCE. It's too bad we don't have anybody that know anything about this. Hey, No and Company, recently I've become interested in becoming a Red Hat certified engineer. I was wondering exactly how one becomes that. As I understand it, you need to first have an RHCSA license or something, and then you need to take classes for that. I would need to take some sort of class if need be. Would having an RHCE help someone who only has a degree in computer science programming find a job or do I need more experience in schooling? Also, I have some relatively unused computers, so it makes sense to install Alma, Rocky on them in order to gain some more experience for these tester exams. Currently, I run NixOS and OpenSUSE primarily, but thanks as always for writing a great show and great advice. Thanks again, MHJ. So, Steve, you might know something about the RHCE.
0: Yes, and uh, just so that we're up front, I'm sure everybody knows, but I work for Red Hat. But before I worked for Red Hat, I actually did my RHCE with my own money. Uh, So, I personally find it worthwhile. Part of that is the challenge of testing my own knowledge. But uh, I should say I have done, I did the Ubuntu certified professional. I did the OpenSUSE data center professional. I've done the, like I've done A plus. I've done a bunch of the CompTIA ones. Uh, So I have a good understanding of various certifications that are out there. The Red Hat one is challenging. There is no splitting bones about that. You have to know with the RHCE, not necessarily the CSA, the RHCE, you have to know your stuff. You go, you get dropped in there and sometimes they give you a broken machine and you literally have to fix it boot before you can even do anything. So it is, it is very much a skills-based thing where the other ones are mostly Mostly weighted towards how do, how do I mark this properly? So it's often multiple choice or some some form of that. As to whether or not it'll get you a job. Hmm. I guess it depends on what you're trying to do. And, but Red Hat has a really good name in, cert- in certifications for a reason. So my personal thought is that while it's not necessarily going to get you a job, it is going to get you past the gatekeeping of the HR people. And it may put you above colleagues. Now, it's going to depend on what you're trying to do, right? As a programmer, is that actually going to be viable? Mm -hmm. Who knows? But I think that if you are willing to put in the effort, when I took the, the last time I took my RHCE, Um, which Red Hat pays for now, but I believe it was $450. So it's not crazy expensive, but you're right. You do have to take your RHCSA, which is the Certified SysAdmin. You have to take that one first. Well, you don't have to take it first. You have to have your RHCSA before they will call you an RHCE. So technically there's two parts to the RHCE. And so it ends up coming out to, I think, $800 or whatever. Uh, I... Like I said, because it's skills-based, I really thought it was worthwhile. You don't have to take the class. There's no prerequisite for that. Um, the class will help you, most likely. Um, I paid for the class when I did when I did it on my own, and it helped me a ton. So uh, I guess it depends on, on what you're trying to achieve. What do you think, Noah, as a business owner? So
1: I t- I, I've never taken the RHCE. I've taken the RHCSA, and what I can tell you is, That I've taken other class, whatever, there's nobody from, hopefully there's nobody from Cisco here that listens. I I was very unimpressed with the, the way that Cisco does their testing because for two reasons. Well, first of all, you're working in an emulator. And so you've got this emulated Java thing that tries to mimic a Cisco router, but not all of the things are there. So that's frustrating. But then on top of that, they give you a, a, like a single piece of transparency and a Kleenex and a marker, and that's what you have to do. And the first Cisco test is essentially, can you do subnetting? is so they just do it over and over and over and over and over and over again. And what I walked out of my Cisco certification class was the knowledge that, I, yes, I can erase a lot of dry erase marker with spit in my finger. That's really what I got out of that class, out of that test. When I went for my RHCSA, what I took away from that class was, and that test was, that you walk in with a functioning box and you, walk, you have to walk out of there with a the functioning box and it must survive a reboot. They give you a list of tasks to do and you do them and if you do them, you pass and if you don't do them, you don't pass. So it's a very real world way of evaluating how, how somebody can can do something like that. And so coming back to that on the other side, when I sit down and interview people and they say, I have this certification, or I have that certification, or I've gone through this class or I have this degree, Really what every business cares about is can you translate those things that you've learned into actual skills? My least favorite thing to hear ever out of a person's mouth is, well, I wasn't—I don't have training in that version. I, I, I have experience or training or whatever in that tough, tough cookies, go pound sand. Like that's not the way the world works. We technology is a fluid thing. It's always moving forward. And so what I would what I would tell uh, MHJ is if you're looking at is the RHCE worth it? It's 100% worth it because it, that alone it has the ability to get you a job when you sit in front of an employer because you'll be able to look them in the eye and say, yes, I am confident, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Person, that I can do X, Y, and Z. And you you'll know that you can do that because you've walked in and done that on an actual box, not an emulator, a real box. And then you've applied those skills and understood that knowledge and then taken that out and you have the certificate to prove it. So... To me, Red Hat certifications mean more than than most other IT certifications out there. When you're talking about can it be translated into an actual skill set to help things? Um, The one one thing I I would correct here, he said, do you have to take any sort of classes? Steve, correct me if I'm wrong on this. I don't believe you're required to take the class to take the test. You can apply. You can go learn the material on your own and just show up and write the test. I don't think they require you to take the class.
0: No, there's no requirement to take a class.
1: So I would say start with the RHCSA. That one is not terribly difficult. It was, I think it was, if I remember right, it was a, it was a one week class. And then the test, if you did the class, um, when I recertified, I didn't do the class. I just went and I actually just bought a a class from, I think, virtual training company VTC and did it there. And I found that to be equally effective, um, the only thing I, I missed from that is the nice thing about doing the Red Hat classes is you can ask the instructor and they will tell you or they'll find out the answer for you. And I found that to be really helpful, although I suppose MHJ could just write back in and ask, you know, ask us. We'll, we'll give you the answer and we won't charge you what Red Hat charges you to take the class.
0: We'll do our best. Right. We'll we try. are kind of bound down, bound by the NDA. But a uh, little bit of, of fun story. When I was doing my Ansible certification there, uh, it's. There is a facility inside of Ansible called a dynamic host file where it attempts to build a dynamic host file, which is just a list of all the servers that it's going to action against. And I had never heard of this in my life. I don't know how I missed it, but I got to the exam and I was like, I don't even know what this is. Um, so when Noah says that it's uh, very results based, I... Ended up digging through the man pages and realized that what it does is it will actually go through a hierarchy of directories and then it will actually try to action something in there. So I wrote a Python script and dropped it in that place and made it executable. And so as soon as it opened up to like see what the file was, it generated the dynamic host file for me because I I knew how to like I knew what I was trying to achieve. Like I knew Ansible well enough, like I know what a host file looks like. So I made a Python script that did it for me. And I passed Uh, if I hadn't have done that, I wouldn't have. like that was the very first step. And if I couldn't have done that, I would have been hosed because they they delete your like Noah said, they reboot your box. And in this case, because they were testing for the dynamic host file, they were deleting the host file on the box. So I couldn't (laughs) just write a host file. I actually had to have a way to rebuild it. So um, they are very much interested in making sure that you get the the. An accurate result and it really does help your creativity. At least it helped mine. I've, there's been several times I've had to come up with some very creative things. I remember sitting next to the guy sitting next to
1: me at my RH CSA test. And so we reboot the machine and I go to get into the boot menu and I'm rapping on F12, right? And the guy next to me looks over me and says, Can you not do that? And I, Sorry, you know, I, I was like I didn't mean to be disruptive to you or anything. I just wanted to get into the boot menu. I get into the boot menu, I do the thing I'm doing, and get back or whatever. Ten minutes later, I look over at the guy, and he's 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 still. The machine boots up, and he restarts it, and he's pressing the F12 key once and missing it, and then the whole machine boots up again. And he's re, this is a time test, right? And I just thought I was like, <laughs> you know, maybe you want to take on my wrapping on the F12 idea. Maybe it wasn't that bad of an idea to begin with. Tim in our chat room asked, hey, we don't talk about Marlin enough, but he is our chat bot, and you can ask him a question. You message at questions, colonelinuxdelta.com, and he spits those questions right in front of our face. So Tim asked, the guy with a Mocha adapter, this is from last week, that failed, he has to be sure to have any splitters along the way that are compatible and will pass the right frequencies. Also... If the cable is connected to cable TV, he may need an inline filter that will prevent his in-house Mocha signaling from propagating up the line to the cable company or the neighbors if the neighborhood infrastructure is old enough. Sunjum asks in the chat room, curious about local domain resolution. I'm setting up a Vahey for uh, hostname.local on my Pi, but I'm curious about adding other services to .home in addition to .local. Steve, do you use, um, as we're going to get into here, pseudo TLDs?
0: Uh, I do. I don't do um, Avahi. I just I make whatever. Like I have a dot lab and I have a dot local and whatever. I have a ton of ton of things that I do here locally. So
1: pseudo TLDs are. So let's start with this. So TLDs, top level domain, is when you purchase a domain. Um, it typically has a TLD associated with so, for instance, .com or .net or .org. It's the very last thing in the URL, and then you're typically buying a domain on top of that. And of course, you can subdivide that domain into, you know, matrix. dot top level. dot domain. dot com, whatever that kind of thing. Some people will just make them up, so they'll use like .dot .lo- Well, .dot a bit different, so we'll come back to that one. But they'll use .dot land or .dot home or something like that. Um, and the that can be dangerous dot local is reserved and so there never I can is never going to introduce dot local so you're probably okay there dot uh, home.arpa is also explicitly reserved so you're okay there but in general you shouldn't use uh, pseudo top level domains you should use a domain that you actually own and then you should create a subdomain in it for for private stuff the other part of that is mdns will will try to resolve some of that stuff so like dot local it, it won't actually query using a regular dns query a regular unicast dns query um, so those are all reasons not to use uh pseudo domains like that and and have an actual proper um domain but um yeah, if you're if you're looking to to run your own DNS or looking to resolve those things um dot .local you you're, you're again assuming you don't have a conflict with MDNS, you should be fine there. Cubicle Nate in the chat room says, I want to know where to get lower cost rack mountable storage solutions. What interface are used between them? I have a RAID 10 ButterFS array that I want to grow. So, I, I you know, it's difficult when you say a lower cost. I'm not sure what that means because you can purchase a used server pretty inexpensively, build it out with the storage array. And then there's, all, there's a bazillion different ways that you can connect, you know, once you have a, a running operating system on it, connect storage arrays together. Um, so that could be a little difficult to beat, but best I could come up with you is a five bay one U rack mount eSATA interface, and this sells for I think three hundred ninety nine dollars, so it's about four hundred bucks. Um, and so the interconnect between that is going to be eSATA, and the nice thing about that is, regardless of what box you're using, chances are you'll be able to get an eSATA interface on it. it won't require any sp- sort of special storage backplane or anything like that. Uh, you should be able to get it up and running. Steve, do you have any thoughts uh, on, on a cheap way to add
0: external storage? So what I would do, it doesn't matter which kind of box you're using. If you want cheap, fast uh, network, you go with InfiniBand. So InfiniBand can can go all the way up to, well, I don't even know what its top speed is right now, but you can get uh, 40 gigabit InfiniBand cards off of eBay for 19 bucks. Uh, you're not going to run these across your house. They are meant for like things stacked on top of each other because infiniband cables are short but if you're talking about interconnecting a server with a san you're not going to get much cheaper than you know two 19 dollar infiniband cards and two cables that where you could create a lag or you know do some sort of uh, aggregation
1: he's going to have to have another box though running the second drives with the infiniband card in it though yeah
0: well he's he's talking about what kind of interfaces to use between them right so like that implies to me that there are already multiple there is a box or multiple boxes that he wants to connect together
1: hmm i guess i was reading that he had uh that he had a a a storage pool and was was interested in growing it
0: yeah but even if that's the case you you would put you know, an InfiniBand in one and that you put an InfiniBand in both of them. And even if it's just a hardware chassis for extra discs, you know, they have to interop somehow. Sure. There is, uh, in, in the movie industry, there is a storage vendor called Isilon and their whole gig is they basically are, uh, ZFS and you, you simply just slot in a new one when you want more storage and they all connect via InfiniBand to each other. And then there's like a controller node or whatever, um, and, you know, I'm just saying it was good enough for us when I worked in the 3D movie studio. So I have to imagine it's going to be good enough for home solution.
1: Absolutely. George calls us. 855 450 No, It's 855 The email live at Hey, George, welcome into the program.
0: Hey, what's going on, guys? How y'all doing? Good, good. I won't keep you too long. I know it's nearing the end of the show. Um, quick question: I'm trying to convert or digitize a lot of old VHS c tapes, and um, I have a VCR. I, uh, you know, I have a computer, but um, it's the capture card. I'm, so I'm trying to get like a capture card recommendation. I know Black Magic is a good, uh, good one, and Magewell. What do you guys recommend for that?
1: Yeah. Um, so, for capturing digital stuff, I would definitely recommend going with like a Blackmagic or or uh, or Magwell. When it comes to analog stuff, if you're going from a VCR, um, the output video is is of such low resolution to begin with that you can really get away with. a, You have a, a wide margin um, to get away with. So I, personally, what we do when we're we're doing VHS transfer for customers, we just use a little uh, USB AV converter. Um, they're like 15 bucks off of Amazon. Uh, I'll get you a link to one. And basically, it has an S-Video input and RCA inputs, So you can either feed it, if your VCR has an S-Video out, that's the best way to go. Otherwise, you can uh, feed it a composite connection.
0: Okay, so like, doing all that extra stuff because you know if you, if you if you try to google all this they start to throw oh well you need a vcr with a tbc or a time-based correction well and it's like and here's the thing ebay for those boxes and they're ridiculous
1: they're they're a few hundred dollars and we do have one uh but the but part of that was if we're, we're buying a vcr specifically to do this we went and looked at you know what the the best one was um but yeah as far as the actual interface goes that the, the, what TBC is doing is it's correcting the video and trying to spit what the VCR outputs as a, as a, as a, as a cleaner source. Um, and so what you're asking about is what do I do after that? How do I ingest that into you know OBS or FFmpeg? Um, and for that, I would argue that all of those interfaces are going to do roughly the same job because they're all capable of the same color depth and the same uh, resolution. And all of those exceed what VHS was capable of.
0: Yeah, when I, I did this kind of exercise a while ago and I just plugged my VCR directly into, um, I have a video in on one of my old graphics cards, but you know what might make your life even easier? I don't, I don't know, but, uh, for the really important ones, I actually just went and got one of those, um, there's a VHS with a, a DVDR combo where, or DVDRW, whatever. Yes and i literally just did that and and then i have the the dvd backups and you can just rip them or do whatever you want with them and that that freed up the computer and that was that was a critical thing for me right cuz you know hours and hours of waiting for this to happen or however long as opposed to just here's a here's a dvd hit the transfer button walk away yeah no that's uh i didn't even think about that <laughs>
1: That's a a great tip, Steve. I
0: appreciate it.
1: Give us a call back if that doesn't work or you have any other questions. Again, 855-450-NO. It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com.
3: From the Linux Newswire Newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. Pat Volkerding announced that version 15 of Slackware Linux is now available. Slackware, the oldest continually developed distribution, was originally released in July of 1993 beating out Debian's September 1993 release date. Slackware 15 comes with a 5.15 LTS kernel, and with either XFCE 416 or KDE 523.5. Slackware wasn't the only distro to put out a release recently. Tinycore 13 is now out. Needing only 46 megabytes of RAM and a 50 megabyte hard disk, you certainly have a spare machine around that you can run it on. Peppermint 11 has been released, and has moved from being built on Ubuntu to being directly built on Debian. Triscoll 10.0 has been released as well. Also, OpenMandriva LX 4.3 has also been released. The last release we have this week of note is LibreOffice 7.3 Community has been released. AMD is looking to hire Linux engineers to work on its client software. Team Blue, on the other hand, aka Intel, has invested a billion dollars into RISC-V, the open source ISA. For Linux users who are a fan of old games, Glide support has now been added to Mesa. In security news, the fallout from the Poonkit exploit on Linux is still ongoing. If you are running any Linux systems, take the time to verify that you have updated them to get the patches. In other patching news, Samba has put out recent updates to fix an out-of-bounds heap vulnerability. If you are running SMB shares, Check if you need to update. And lastly, the Kubernetes tool Argo CD has a high-severity path transversal flaw and needs to be patched as soon as possible. However, in good Kubernetes news, a documentary about Kubernetes has been released and was made in collaboration with Red Hat, Google, and the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. Oracle Linux is now showing up in the Windows Store as one of the options for WSL. And in a move that will surely ruffle some feathers, GitHub introduces sponsor-only repositories.
1: So in past weeks, Steve and I have talked about the migration to the data center. And so a brief recap, we're trying to move some of the services that we have hosted on on various VPS providers over to our own data center. So we signed a contract with the data center, got in there, got Internet pipe up. We put a small server in there just so we could start testing the grounds and kind of get an idea of things that we'd want to pay attention to. Now, you have to understand something. I work in. I have worked for a long time in an area where we deal with small offices and small business networks. So typically, I can see all of the endpoints if I need to. If I stand in the right place, I go put my hands on all of the endpoints. And the most complicated it typically gets for me is multi sites and connecting them via VPN. And so when we start looking, when we start looking at how do we as a company move towards being able to offer services and. And 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 to users at scale all over the internet, all of a sudden there's a bunch of other things that uh, you know need to be considered. And so I'm learning as I go along, and so I'm I'm kind of throwing myself out here a little bit because I'm going to open this up and learn on the air. Uh, so last week we started to run into some issues with our matrix instance. So we started the Linux Delta matrix instance really to get through self when self went remote, and I. I committed to it primarily because I wanted to learn about matrix and element and how all of those things uh, worked, and it's been a great testing ground uh, for a great many things. And I've I've been able to wrap my head around a lot of things. It got me using Ansible and kind of playing with stuff. Uh, and at this point, it powers a tremendous amount of Altaspeed and Ask Noah's show. So when you, you when you watch the YouTube stream, you're watching the 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 Matrix chat that's hosted on our server. When you participate in our guest chat, that's a instance that is custom written for us that runs on the Ask Noah website. And all of this is done open source, open code. Everything is available either from other people that have written the code, or if we've done the development, it's available from us at Altaspeed on our GitLab page. But we went, thought that, hey, we're running out of space on the server, and so we need to do something else. And the Digital ocean bill was essentially doubling every few months. And so we thought, well, we better do something differently. And I had thought there was maybe a thousand users that were on that server. We got to looking at it. There are 12,000 users that are running on the Linux Delta Matrix instance. 12,000 users. And we don't have any, we have un, unlimited retention, so we're keeping every photo and video storing I shouldn't say keeping because we don't have access to it, it's encrypted but just storing all of that stuff essentially indefinitely so we started the migration process last week we thought we'll move it into the data center and see if we can host that ourselves um, we've done some small stuff we did the data migration that took four days so it was way longer than we thought we were thinking it would take an afternoon or maybe a night, and ended up taking four days. And the good part of the story is that Ansible made it super easy to just redeploy the entire server. Watching that occur really nailed home for me the idea that containers are really more like the Tupperware disposable containers and not so much like the permanent storage containers. All that we really moved was the data. Everything else was built from scratch. The downside was once we tried to spin everything up, Postgres... Nailed our disks, nailed them to the point that we just couldn't nobody could log in. Um, and so after uh, after what was a really great fantastic community night last Thursday, eventually what we landed on was we cannot run Postgres and well, let me rephrase, We can't we can run Postgres and Synapse on the same box when it's running on DigitalOcean and we have access to their enterprise grade SSDs and all of that. When you try to move it over to your own box, Postgres really needs its own disk array and preferably it's not containerized and preferably it's not virtualized. Although, Steve, I want to pick your brain about that. Um, So we looked into using SSDs, but I'm told that if we put SSDs in there and try to run Postgres on it, it'll work and it'll be fast and then we'll burn through SSDs like nobody's business. So for the time being, we moved back to DigitalOcean, and now we've learned a little bit more about the proper process for migrating Synapse, and so we were able to do that, do that in just a few hours. Uh, so it took a fraction of the time, got it back up. So my plan, Steve, and I want to run this by you, uh, my plan is to buy four 10K SAS drives, have a dedicated Postgres box, and then Synapse will run on a VM inside of a, with, with Ansible Deploy, so inside of a container, uh, and the, the, the virtual host will all have SSDs. How, what do you think? Is that, do you think that will get us there or or am I still missing something?
0: Well, so the first thing that you missed in this whole situation, remember how I said you need to take a baseline mm-hmm. uh, when we talked about this before? Do you have any idea how many IOPS you're generating? No idea. Then how can you possibly try to migrate this? Ah, so I have to, Cause, because you could say, oh, it'll run fine on SSDs, but Commercial SSDs might not be able to handle the IOPS that that you require. Just the same thing as your SAS drives. Like you need to, you need to take a look at what you're currently running. Like there's there's a bunch of things that can help you here. So you could look to shift um, Postgres into RAM or primarily into RAM, and it's going to take a lot of that load off the disk. And then you'll have to flush it to to um, to disk every once in a while. You could some of the other things that impact your performance potentially. This gets down in the weeds a little bit, but there's something called NUMA, which has to do with the way that CPU ac- accesses memory. And in if that is configured properly, you will see a big benefit because what can happen is you can, in some situations, you can actually have it where um, the CPU needs to normally access the RAM directly, but there is the North Bridge that gets involved in this communication. So if you've got two CPUs in your box, right? Mm-hmm and you've got a Northbridge, but you have all of your RAM sitting on one side of the CPU or or the other, and you haven't configured it for uh, equal read access across the CPUs. So let's say the RAM is on CPU 1, just for for sake, right? CPU 1 can have direct access to the RAM, and the way that that works is it just talks directly to the RAM because it's got a channel. CPU 2, what it has to do is it goes through the north bridge, the north bridge sends it to CPU one, then CPU one sends it to the RAM, then back to CPU one, back through the north bridge, and then back up to CPU two. And that can cause massive, massive bottleneck. Um, So it depends on how much you wanna architect this, but it all starts with, what are my IOPS? What kind of IOPS can I reasonably perform? And then you look at what kind of optimizations can I do? Do I run it in RAM? Do I look at making sure that my RAM is is placed physically well on the server? Because if you do that wrong, like I said, you can cause yourself all kinds of trouble. Mm. So, um,
1: Is is generation of server important? Is it important to have like a latest generation server, latest generation CPU? Or is it more about understanding what the requirements are and then just uh, implementing those?
0: You need to know where you're bottlenecking, right? Do you know for sure that you're bottlenecking on IOPS? Do you know, like, because, so I'll give you a real, a really easy one, uh, on a generation eight HP ProLiant, uh, the OpenShift software that I run will eat about 40% of the CPU just sitting idle. Mm. Whereas if I put this on my Ryzen thing, it blips along at like five to 7%. Okay. And, and so I might perceive that I have a, a like a disc access problem, but it actually is that, that I have too many interrupts on my CPU because of the amount of time that it's spending just doing nothing. So you really need to I, identify what are my IOPS, what are my interrupts, and those sort of things.
1: Yeah, we were able to identify uh, for sure that the that what we were doing was we were hammering the disk. But as far as, the ex- I, I guess, the exact reason for that, we're suspecting that that's Postgres. And from there, it's all conjecture. So... I'll have to do a little bit more digging. I'll have to get with you on the weekend and uh, have you help me dig through a little bit. I'm learning as I go along, but it's, I tell you, going from managing offices with less than 50 people to going to try to serve 12,000, it's a steep learning curve. I don't doubt it. Hey, the music in our ears means we're out of time. Thanks for joining us. The show is recorded every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You can learn more at AskNoahShow.com. Follow us on Twitter at AskNoahShow. Waiting to see you next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. Have a good week.